Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 381. Continuing with the uh, um, our episode here on Baroque, uh, we're going to pick up with Baroque ceilings. Most ceilings of the period were not plastered. Ornament was provided by chamfering the beams and sometimes the joists supporting the floor above. The only feature that distinguishes a ceiling of this type from similar constructions of the late 16th century or earlier is that the timbers became narrower, a reflection of the fact that wood was increasingly competed for by the way of compensation. The stops at the ends of the chamfers became increasingly complex for decoration. Better houses had plastered ceilings suspended from the undersides of the floor above. As previously, however, the style of plaster ornament changed greatly, although not until about 1640. There was a desire to emulate ancient architecture as walls were gradually organized into ancient architectural forms. Their junction was the ceiling was marked by a cornice, and even when the ceiling and wall were plain. If this point had been emphasized at all in the 16th century, it would have been with a frieze. There was also an increasing systemization of the ornament. The 16th and 17th century ceiling was an impenetrable maze of ornament, ornament on ornament. The Baroque ceiling although retaining densely ornamented areas, had them divided from each other and even from some areas that were entirely plain by a grid which imposed a clearly centralized and sometimes heretical systematic endeavor. Baroque floors. Baroque houses would have stone, have stone flags in the principal and service rooms at entrance level when stone was available. Alternatively, bricks or tiles would be used. The installation of modern damp proofing has reduced the numbers of surviving original floors. In houses of exceptional quality, floors using stone or marble in two or more colors were laid in such a way that they created illusionistic patterns. The surface appeared to vary in depth as one would look down hallways. On the upper levels, floors were made of wooden boards, except in the East Midlands of England, where they were made of lime putty laid on laths. The most expensive wooden floors were laid in patterns and were executed in woods of several colors and species. Again, elaborate illusion designs were the most prized, and effects similar to those produced in stone could be achieved by using parquet or even marquetry. A less expensive form of decoration was achieved by painting patterns on floorboards. This technique may have been quite common, but few such floors have survived. Woven carpets, usually imported from the Eastern Mediterranean, were considered to be too expensive to walk on, so they became wall hangings. They were placed beneath the best furniture only, and beneath the owners themselves when their portraits were painted. In less formal rooms, floors would sometimes be covered with rush matting.
Baroque fireplaces. Many fireplaces were little more than a hole in the wall, framed and molded in wood or stone, like a simple classical door. However, in houses of any pretension, it was usual to give fireplaces prestigious treatment. They could be dignified with a frieze and cornice, and in a very grand room, the cornice would be supported by pilasters. The decorative arrangement of the surrounding wall could be altered and or interrupted to emphasize the fireplace. The most momentous version of this was the ornament, ornamental and architectural composition above the chimney piece, usually framed by pilasters and sometimes pedimented. Early in the period, the most superb cornices projected on corbels forward from the pilasters transforming the ornamental into the sculptural feature. By 1700, such effects were only possible when the fireplace was set in a corner. Naturalistic carvings offered further expressive possibilities. After the restoration, car frames became enlarged, while the panels they framed were diminished. There was also a fashion for mirror glass, which was very expensive at the time. These trends culminated around 1710 in overmantels wholly of, of sculpture with inset mirrors. Firebacks were cast with ornamental designs. The fire dogs which held the logs in place were given ornamental finials or styled as classical columns. The broke staircases is often mass, a massive affair the stairs are usually of wood, commonly oak, and until the end of the period are of the close string type form with a diagonal beam enclosing the ends of the treads and risers and supporting the balustrade itself. The grandest stairs are of stone with elaborate wrought iron balustrades. Because stone stairs could not rest on a diagonal beam and had to be cantilevered, Engineering skills were pushed to their limits at this point in history. Such staircases were reserved for the wealthy, but with ingenuity, less expensive wooden stairs could be made to imitate stone. Either they were cantilevered or they appeared to be set in by the, the beam back out of sight, holding the main superstructure of the stairs. The most expensive wooden balustrades were continuous pierced panels, at first of strap, strap work and later of acanthus scroll work, sometimes with additional carved figures. Individual turn balusters were more common. At first, these were wasted out by the mid-17th century. Their center of gravity had dropped, so they became vase-shaped. The more expansive and expensive ones have carved acanthus ornaments and enrichments. After 1660, twisted balusters became fashionable. Newels were usually square-sectioned with a finial on top. From about 1660, they were sometimes also braced from the floor by a carved console. Square-sectioned newels were eventually replaced by a form of classical columnry. So let's talk about built-in furniture in the Baroque. So the definition of furniture was wider than it is today. 
and it could include such items as paneling. A man might bequeath his wainscot to someone else, for example, independently of, of his house. So it, everything that was built in was always made to be easily removable and transportable. Where houses had very thick walls, it was always possible to contrive built-in cupboards. Ventilated floor cupboards were sometimes recessed. Their, their doors, which were generally oak, would vary in style from region to region. Some were relatively plain with pierced perforations. Others, where owners were preposterous, may be paneled and ornamented. Spice cupboards used for storing spices and medicines could also be set into the wall. Built-in buffets, which were used for the display of silver and glass, became highly fashionable late in the 17th century. In the grandest houses, these could be set into arched niches in the dining room. Less affluent households might have a built-in corner cupboard, though, usually with shaped shelving and a shell head decoration. These popular fixed covers were also incorporated into the wall paneling. As books became more available and cross, libraries were furnished with built-in bookcases. Originally, the books were housed behind cupboard doors, but these were replaced by open shelving as it became increasingly conventional to display spine bindings, and they were of such a high art form in themselves. So. Let's talk about services in the Baroque. All the theoretical writers about architecture stress the need to site a new house near a spring or river. They hardly had to, for common sense and tradition both conveyed the same message. In towns, one of the, one of the most easily recognized signs of benevolence of a ruler was the provision of public water. However, English kings and city authorities rarely rivaled the Roman emperors or the popes in this respect. Instead, London was furnished with water by venture capitalism, the necessary engineering works being undertaken by private companies such as the New River Company or the Chelsea Water Company. To supplement these erratic sources, houses were designed as often as possible with at least a partial area a flat roof on which to collect rain to a lead cistern. Great houses had much lead at their disposal, and as a form of consequence, some aristocratic families suffer from lead poisoning for generations. People used chamber pots in their own rooms, and these were supplied in quantity in rooms where eating and drinking took place. Sometimes they were built into an item or of movable furniture, the closed stool, which might have been kept in a special closet, the stool chamber or the dark closet, where space permitted outside privies uh, or houses of easement were built in far at the end of the yard or garden. Let's talk about Baroque lighting. During the Baroque period, even a single candle was an expensive item. The fire lit most indoor activities after sunset, and a candle would be carried up to the bedchamber. The poor used rushes dipped in fat and held by a clip. The middle classes had tallow candles, and the rich had wax. Candle stands were usually made of turned wood, 
although brass and pewter were more desirable, and they were tending to be the norm very quickly. The very rich had silver stands, but only in the best locations, and not until the end of the 17th century. Where people were on the move, in passages and on stairs, a constant but dim light could be provided by a lantern. Staircase lanterns were often suspended from iron branch that was hinged from the landing. The lantern was pulled across and lit from a staircase and then levied into place. Rooms of ceremony could have a branched fixture suspended by a cord from a hook in the ceiling. It would hang quite low for ease of lighting. Chains and pulleys were an 18th century innovation, though. So it was usually made of brass with a central reflective globe to enhance the candlelight. Chandeliers were grander even still. Most were made from carved and gilded wood. The best were rock crystal. Sconces, demi gerandal, were later a later luxury. For most of the period, these were mounted on brass plates, which were sometimes decorated with reposé work. By the 17th century, mirror glass was used, and the ornament was transformed to richly carved and gilt frames. Let's move to metalwork in the Baroque period. During the 17th century, technical improvements resulted in the production of highly sophisticated ironwork. Iron was supplied in bars as little as half an inch, one centimeter thick, and was worked into ornamental forms, darts, twists, leaves, waves, frets, scallops, and even masks, bird and animal heads, and cloths of estate emblems. Sometimes reposé work was used, hammered in relief ornament. Wrought iron gates and railings include the full repertoire of decorative devices. Finials eased into the simple spikes and became balls, leaves, and spears. Some bulbous shapes were supplied ready cast and were welded on. Bars were held together by either rivets or collars. Full height bars in a gate are often interdispersed with other shorter spearheaded bars, which prevented dogs from slipping through. Panels of double curved arabesque were fashionable at plinth height and on the top of gates. From about 1650, iron balconies became extremely fashionable, predominantly positioned over the front doors, and they often have alternating plain and twisted bars and panels of foliage and scrollwork. They were always painted, probably blue or green, and sometimes gilt. So there were also situations where you had boundary walls between properties, and these were often situated at the end of walks. Viewers on the outside enjoyed a fine vista of grounds and house. So these openings were usually fitted with ornamental wrought iron grills so that finishes up with our Baroque segment here. This is uh, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Um, next, we're going to move on to early Georgian. And uh, so thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, 
We'll see you next time. Thank you so much.